0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses. I'm coming to you today from my hotel room in Jerusalem. I occasionally lead tours to Israel. I have for 13, 14 years. I call them uh, pilgrimages. Sort of tapping into one of the seven ancient disciplines inside Christianity. Probably the most forgotten. And a pilgrimage is just simply an adventure. It's a a spiritual adventure, a psycho-spiritual adventure, where you open yourself up to the landscape, the land, the people, the stories, uh, the wind, the waves, the heat, the cold, the narratives, the images and symbols. And a pilgrimage is supposed to change you in some way. And I have certainly found in my life, I've been changed not only by leading them, but <clears throat> I don't know, Being having the privilege to be a participant in this kind of stuff as well. And I don't know, I, on the one hand, I think uh, visiting Israel or Palestine, depends on your narrative, or both, Israel-Palestine, is, I mean, it's a real privilege. I mean, let's just be honest. We live in a world where people... Um, I don't know, I, I travel itself is a kind of, of luxury. And so I feel like honored in a way. And when you travel here, you are dipping into the past. You're, It's kind of like an archaeological dig where you're going through layers of culture and history and, and stories and images. But it's also a living place. It's not a relic. 12 million people live on this tiny strip of land. Only 6 million of them are Jews. A million and a half um, a, million and a half Israelis are minorities, meaning Christian Arabs, Muslim Arabs, who have citizenship in Israel, Druze people, Bedouins. So it's a complicated mixture, and those are just the people who have Israeli citizenship and... Then you have the other almost 5 million Palestinians who live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And among those numbers are families. You know, real people who who have lived here for generations, and many of them have been displaced. And it's such a complicated freaking situation. And I personally have not wanted to weigh in or I haven't wanted to weigh in too often. In fact, I'm, I'm here just days after Trump's announcement that he would move the embassy here. And everybody thinks they have an opinion about what to do and what should be done, particularly those who know the least some of them are in the government, and I'm not, I don't mean that in, in any kind of arrogant way. I barely know anything, and I lived here for three years. In fact, my, one of my professors used to say, if you come to Israel for a week, basically as a tourist, you go home and write a book. If you stay for a month, a couple months, a few months, you might write a newspaper article. If you stay any longer, you won't have anything to say. And I have found that to be the case. Um, the deeper I dive into this stuff, the more complex it is. And and in no, in no other place on earth do outsiders feel like they have the right to weigh in and to say what should be done and to act as if uh, if two people, neighbors... Can't sit down and work it out. Now, I don't know if they can sit down and work it out or not, but sort of bullying a foreign powers, bullying their way, bullying other people to the table, I don't know, doesn't really strike me as a very uh, gracious and safe environment to have really complex, difficult, emotional conversations. And, you know, <laughs> One of the things that has struck me in recent years is that both parties collectively, and I'm, I'm thinking now of kind of the collective unconscious, are are traumatized. They're two traumatized people groups who have found their way next to one another on this tiny sliver of land. The Palestinians have suffered uh, immensely, enormously, not only at the hands of Israeli Jews and those who immigrated to Israel, but at the hands of their own brothers and sisters in these surrounding countries. I mean, most of the Palestinian refugees uh, live in Jordan are refugees in a Muslim country. So they're minorities in their own region of the world and they've suffered enormously and traumatized uh, people groups make decisions that are largely rooted in safety, security, and fear, and the Jewish people, in many respects, are the same way. So I, you, nearly every Jewish person that I have met here in Israel, in some way, shape, or form, is connected to the Holocaust, and that is no light matter. That is a kind of collective trauma. That one carries deep and part of what how that comes out is not only actions that can be rooted in safety security and fear but there's a deep knowing that nobody 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 will help us and maybe that's true on both sides now more than ever these Arab countries they wave flags and they pretend to care for the Palestinians but they're largely just pawns and they don't really want to get involved they just want to condemn Israel and sound rhetorically like they support the Palestinians. But in reality, they do nothing or virtually nothing. And from the Israeli point of view, from the Jewish point of view, they know no one will help them, not even America. There's a kind of wink and a nod like, hey, thanks, Trump, for um, you know having our backs rhetorically and thanks for the money. And the American government gives loads of money to Israel and Palestine, by the way. And, I don't know, a deep knowing that no matter how good it looks on a piece of paper, how strong the relationship is, we know what happened in Europe only 70 years ago. And if push comes to shove, governments and people are essentially selfish. Especially governments. And who's going to help us? Who is going to help us? So... How to two really wounded people groups that, that cannot be summed up in any simple way. Just to be Jewish here, for example, is really complicated. You might come from Yemen. I have a Yemenite friend here. You might come from Poland. You might come from Spain. And these are wildly different cultures. And same with the Palestinians, who might have a kind of family heritage from right here in the land of Israel, it, or it might be Jordan, it might be Lebanon. Their families too have been displaced and moved around. And to be honest, it's we have such a um, a really narrow view of history. After all, the entire problem of the Middle East in terms of borders and boundaries and people groups came after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, exactly 100 years ago, the Ottoman Empire collapsed and the British and the French arbitrarily divided up the Middle East and that arbitrary division of lands in 1948 was messed up by Israel and rerouted and then messed up again in 1967 and messed up again in the Yom Kippur war after that. And uh, we act as if these borders and boundaries have been around, you know, since <laughs> since the old testament or something. These are modern issues. And modern issues call for fresh imaginative ways of thinking. And that's part of what makes the the conversation so complex in my view. And Something Jesus said occurred to me a couple days ago when I was up north in Galilee. We were talking about Jesus, and I was mentioning one of his teachings, and I wasn't thinking politically at all. But Jesus says this uh, short little teaching. I'll 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 read it to you. I, hold on, let me find it. Um, let's see where is this? Okay, this is in this is in Luke. So they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. They're talking about John the Baptist. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus said, um, then he told them in a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it onto the old one. Hmm. All right. And the patch, or if he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Very intriguing. So he's saying something about you can't take something new and put it on something old. It doesn't work. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. So essentially, Jesus is saying you can't take something new and shove it into something old. Otherwise, it's going to burst and run out all over the place, or it's going to tear and fall apart. He says new wine needs new wineskins. And by the way, he sort of adds a little aside and says, anyone who's tasted old wine knows that it's better. And I think in this particular context, they're talking about new Traditions that are in what's called the oral law. Uh, This kind of precedes the teachings of the rabbis in the Mishnah. These traditions that were passed down around fasting, prayer, hand washing, a few other things. Jesus isn't saying there's anything wrong with these new traditions. He's just saying if you try to shove them into something old, it's going to break. That new things, new traditions, new realities, call for new skins, meaning new containers. New, imaginative, creative containers. And when you think about the issues here in Israel, there are so many old wineskins. And even the language, the rhetoric, reveals such a thing. Think how loaded words like occupied territories is. Well, these are occupied territories. Okay, means Israel occupied a land that's usually what's meant but that land is relatively new and was occupied by the British and the French when it was occupied by the Ottomans and it was and you see you just keep you start going back in time and you realize that people have been moving in and out of this land for a very long time in fact it was interesting I was up in the Golan Heights and the Golan Heights was uh, taken by Israel in, in 1967 from the Syrians. And so today you have Syria, which is not really even a country anymore. It's just completely in shambles. And you have a chunk of their land along the Sea of Galilee. This really it's a kind of a tiny sliver that Israel took during the Six Days War. And this is called occupied territories. But what's funny, funny is the wrong word for it, ironic, is that um, Israel, it has been in Israeli hands longer than it was in the hands of Syria as, um, in, in, the, in the sense of Syria as a country which was formed after the British and the French left. So it's just odd. I mean, it's just strange. So a word like occupied territories is kind of like an old <clears throat> wineskin. It meant something. And it still means something from a tradition point of view, but it may not be helping the present situation. Same with the way the Jewish people talk about the West Bank. All West Bank means is the West Bank of the Jordan River, but um, pro-Israel people will call it Judea and Samaria, because that's the biblical term. They won't say West Bank, they'll say this is Judea and Samaria, the biblical lands of Judea and Samaria, and technically they are correct. It is Judea and Samaria, but it's such a loaded term and every time that term gets shoved into the new situation, it causes serious problems. Even something as simple as holy land. You know, Christians somehow feel that they have a right to have an opinion because this is the so-called holy land. What, what makes a land holy? <clears throat> I mean, you would think that the, the deep mystery of the Incarnation, meaning the divine in fleshed, in human form, in form itself, in matter, that we would view any human being, any situation, any place on the planet as containing the divine mystery. But somehow we have specialized, localized this thing that's somehow more special. Therefore, I have the right to go there and have an opinion and whatever, as if God likes this tiny strip of land with very little fresh fresh water, uh, better than He likes someplace else. I mean, I can't personally. I mean, you might be different, but I can't really trust um, a God or even the, a more myst- mysterious notion of God that I like presently am more attracted to, that somehow likes, kind of prefers some land over another, some people group, um, and not another. That does not ring true to me anymore. So all this language, all these layers of language, seem to me, I mean, I'm just wondering, I guess, out loud, if this is a little like the old wineskins that Jesus is talking about. Old wine is fine. There's something amazing about it, tasty about it, there's, in other words, there's something important about the story. And if you know, if you have any Middle Eastern friends, you know that story is not like what's just happening in your lifetime, but your grandparents and your great-grandparents. And one of my friends here knows, I mean, he, uh, he's, he's Jewish, and he's been living in Israel for seven generations. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you what was going on in my own family seven generations ago. So the sense of story is a little bit longer. So people around here, both Jews and Arabs, have a longer view of history. And, <clears throat> and so the, the old wineskins, they matter and they matter. They still matter. But what is the present situation? What is the reality of the present situation. Instead of clinging so tightly to our narratives, what new wine is emerging? What new wine is right in front of us? I don't care how complicated it is. What is the present situation? There's so much denial, by the way, going on on both sides and from the Americans. So much denial. Just not wanting to look at the reality of the situation. And when I say the reality of the situation, I mean just in my mind just now, I'm thinking also the reality of the mostly peaceful situation day by day. Are there riots? Yes. Are people shot? Yes. Um, do people lose their lives on both sides of this conflict? Yes. Does the Israeli army have way more power than the Palestinians? Absolutely. Who pays for it? The Americans. All this is true. It's a, it, in some ways, it's a dangerous um, landmine of a place. However, Most people, day by day, Palestinians and Israelis live side by side, visit one another's villages, shop together, sometimes occasionally eat together. I was just in the West Bank today, and the only thing that divides some of the neighborhoods, Jewish and Palestinian, is not a wall. There is a wall in the West Bank. What divides it is a road. You can cross the road. Um, and they're not sitting on their roof with, um, sniper rifles and setting up barbed wire around their own fences because most of the time Jews and Arabs are living side by side. So what is the reality of the situation? And what might it call for? And part of what I'm just wondering about out loud and if maybe as a caveat, that's all I'm trying to do here. I might be wrong. I'm definitely wrong about some things. But you you know Einstein's famous quotation, no problem can be solved by the same level of consciousness that created it. So the level of consciousness, the tribal level of consciousness that created the situation even perhaps the traumatized level of consciousness that created the situation is not the consciousness that's needed to fix the situation. In fact, if the consciousness doesn't shift, then history, in a sense, will repeat itself. I actually hate that phrase because every single moment is a fresh moment. I believe that to be the case. History actually doesn't repeat itself, but the patterns tend to. And the patterns will just... Of tribalism, isolation, fear, aggression, uh, vi- uh, victimization, both sides feel victimized. You get locked in this thinking, in this way of being, and the consciousness doesn't emerge and shift. So, and how do you go around saying that? How do you go around saying, we don't need a freaking embassy and spent. I mean, even just think the practicality of it. Actually, I know right where this chunk of land is. It, it's um, less than uh, like a like a three minute walk from my old apartment in a in a neighborhood called Abutor. Abutor is a the only mixed Arab Jewish neighborhood in all of Jerusalem, believe it or not. And that's where I lived when I was here. And just three minute walk from there is this giant plot of land for the quote the future embassy bought by the Americans. Well, I don't know if they bought it. It's reserved. For it. I don't know the technical details, but what a waste of millions and millions of dollars building an embassy that's largely just a political uh move. And you know, and is Jerusalem the capital of Israel? Yes. I mean it, it is. From it already is. Just because Trump says it says it is, what is, you know. Who cares? It's like weighing in to something. And I know it's more complicated than that, but um, what we don't need is a freaking embassy. We need a shift in consciousness. And I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I know it's subtle. I know it takes time. I know it takes humility. I know it takes listening. And I don't know, I see Jesus as the kind of teacher who's interested less in tribal politics and more in, into um, being a, I don't know what I would call it. It's like, um, like baiting people with questions, thoughts, parables, stories, healings, right, like, luring almost almost to the edge of their consciousness, of the present way they see the world, whether they're hyper-religious and they're into rules or they're feeling like total outcasts, the prostitutes and tax collectors. He's luring them to the very edge of the way they think the world is. In other words, their consciousness. And he's giving them a tiny shove. Um... Or he's at least opening up a window, a door, because if one's shift, if one experiences a shift in consciousness, that's on a deeper level you can't go back. You cannot go back to the old stories, the really the old wineskins, the old containers. You realize that something new is being asked. Something new creative and imaginative. I have yet to hear, especially among politicians and talking heads on TV, probably um, political theorists, social, um, political scientists, there probably are some creative imaginative people, but they don't tend to make it on Fox News and CNN. So <clears throat> my point was, I've yet to hear any kind of creative, fresh shift in consciousness. And I think that's what that's the kind of thing Jesus is saying, all right, new wine needs new containers, new skins, in other words. That's the thing I think that, I don't know, is being maybe asked. Maybe it's not me. Maybe it's not Gen X people. Maybe the millennials need a voice in some of this stuff. Um, one of My friend Danny, he he's a Christian, and he teaches in two schools. He teaches in two of the best primary schools in the West Bank. One is in Hebron, and one is in Bethlehem. The interesting thing, by the way, about the school in Hebron is that the school itself is evangelical in its orientation. It's a Christian school, and it's 100% Muslim. That's in Hebron. The, In other words, the, the students who go there, the parents, are Muslim. And they say, if this is the best school, I'm going to send my kid there anyway. By the way, talk about new wineskins talk about um, fresh imaginative way of relating and he has all kinds of kids in there families that are on the very extreme far um, pro-Palestinian militant uh, point of view and persuasion families who are like that and on the other end some who are just fed up with religion but one of the interesting things he's noticed among very young people is that Almost without exception, they're resistant to the narratives that they've been handed. Most of them don't want anything to do with religion because they see religion as uh, feeding this unworkable situation. It's not workable for anybody. So, I don't know, I take that as a ray of hope, not that I'm trying to bring down religion necessarily, but I'm just trying to say that new wine... Who's going to come up with the new wineskins? Well, I I imagine very slowly a shift in consciousness is beginning to emerge among young people and and among people up and down the age spectrum. What will they imagine? And one reason why I'm saying all this is because an Israeli friend of mine um, who I was talking to the other day mentioned something that I really had never thought about before. There's something here called the status quo. And the status quo is exactly what it sounds. The status quo. (laughs) The present situation without much meddling. It's a technical and also kind of metaphoric term. And what he said is that people often underestimate the gift that the status quo is for both sides. Now, I have never heard anybody say that because... Every single talking head says the problem is the status quo, and we need to fix it. We need to change it. We need a two-state solution, a one-state solution, whatever. And then all of a sudden, everybody's got an opinion on how to fix the status quo. But here's just what I'm wondering. Again, out loud, not an expert. I might be wrong. What if something like the status quo, which causes suffering, no doubt, but also allows for a kind of equilibrium, a kind of um, tense, but um, somewhat workable situation to just exist. After all, Israel was founded in 1948. Much of the West Bank problem, I mean, it started before that too, but <clears throat> the situation of what to do with people who were once Jordanians and now Jordan has left that's the situation with the West Bank and Israel signed a peace treaty with Jordan so what about all these millions of real people with real families who raised trying to raise their kids what do we do about this that started in 1967 that's not very old and uh, the West thinks it can fix everything through its uh, mechanistic uh, industrial system which has to work fast if it's going to work at all, what if there is something about the status quo? And within the status quo, trying to provide a safe enough environment on both sides, a safe enough environment without answering the big questions, I wonder if something like that has to exist long enough for a new level of consciousness to emerge. That's the thing that I'm curious about. In other words, when will new wineskins emerge in in which this new wine needs to be placed? I don't know. But maybe we need to give it some time. Maybe putting the pedal all the way down, moving the embassy, forcing talks doesn't appear like it's going to work anyway. We can already imagine where this is going. Probably some kind of giant backfire. So it sounds like I'm saying... Let's not do anything, and of course, people will slay me for this, like how dare you you need to pick a side or you know some people I think a lot of my friends here in Israel who are Christians, and by the way, this is a real this is a statistic that you might find surprising of the twelve million people here, uh, only one point two five percent of the people in Israel are Christians, so pretty small minority, and many of my friends um, would say that. In some respect, they're pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli at the same time, which sounds like a cop-out, but I don't know if it is. I really don't know if it is. I mean, that's another way of saying I'm pro-human being. And when you're pro-human being, you have to end up asking questions like, well, what is it like to be you to the other? What is it like to be you? I can't think of a more important question in the middle of a status quo than to say, tell me what it's like to be you. And learning to listen on that deeper level. Even if the stories sound like a lot of old wineskins, people, human beings, still have the right to tell what it's like to be them and to be heard. And maybe, I mean, maybe what would be the most helpful right now is to not force people into political ideologies, but to do everything in our power to peacefully hold space for people to say what it's like to be them. Otherwise, when you feel shut down and victimized, it's likely to leak out sideways in very destructive and unhealthy and unhelpful ways. You know, I guess one more thing that is worth mentioning. And and again, this this comes from my, um, I've never heard anybody say this before. And, you know, uh, so I'm going to say it and it's not going to have a lot of nuance around it. And it's a relatively new thought for me. But I feel like, there's at least some truth hanging around down in there, that maybe needs to be heard, especially for Americans. And I was thinking about America's support of Israel, and and by and large, uh, at least from the uh, from a government point of view, Israel, um, America is much more pro-Israel than obviously. Palestinian and what what is this about and here's what I'm wondering that when we support Israel we're supporting a kind of narrative it seems to me that is not unlike our own narrative which is the Jewish people have the right to go into a land now I understand it was their ancestral land but into a land and they have the right to live there, dwell there, and if other people groups are in the way, they have the right to display, displace them. And we mix that with godlike language. We say, "Well, God gave them that right to do that." And just just read the Bible, for example, which conveniently supports the major mythology of America, which is God gave us the right to go over to the land, we use the same verses from the Bible, by the way, um, to support our own Zionistic claim on the United States as the new holy land. I'm not making any of this up. And if people groups were in our way, we have the right to displace them. Now, as long as we support Israel, we have, in some ways, unconsciously, I think, we're supporting our own mythology. So maybe what needs to happen is that our mythology needs to fall apart. The story we've been telling, the old wineskins um, need to sit on the shelf as old wineskins. (laughs) Um, At least that's what I'm imagining. And you can see it with young people. They're not buying into the American mythology anymore. That just because we're white, wealthy, educated, largely Protestant... We have the right to displace Native Americans and uh, make slaves out of Africans and all in the name of progress. Our our young people are waking up and saying, hell no, we do not want to be identified with this narrative. And as that falls apart, so do the other narratives we see happening out there in the world, like this Israel-Palestine narrative and the way we've told the story. So... The thing that helps the most in the unraveling of these uh, uh, myths, cultural myths, is again listening to people tell their story. What is it like to be you? You matter. I don't care if you're a Druze family living in the Golan Heights, meaning the Druze are um, an offshoot of Islam, Uh, And a major minority, not well liked by uh, their Muslim neighbors, uh, particularly the Shiites. They were originally Shiites. So what's it like to be you? What's it like to live, to grow cherries and apples in the Golan Heights as a Druze person? What's that like? What's it like to live in a land um, where you pay taxes to a Jewish majority? What's that like? And beginning to listen on, on that level, I don't know, I'm... I mean, it sounds like I'm already t- trying to think of solutions. I'm not really. I'm just trying to um, raise the importance of not listening to the mainstream narratives, but listening to the ones that are beneath the surface and are every day. And I know, I don't know, and now this almost feels like a kind of longing or a hope or a prayer. That if we find um, ourselves listening with new ears and seeing with new eyes and taking some doing a searching moral and ethical inventory of our own worldview, and the ways in which it's, uh, our narratives support our own um, our own unhelpful mythologies and are perhaps rooted in, in fear. As we begin to look into the face of the other, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> This new wine that's all over the place, meaning new realities in the Middle East that have never existed before in the history of the world, will find some new wineskins. That's my prayer.